Hello and welcome back to Stern Chats, a podcast that explores the untold stories of the NYU Stern community. My name is Peter Xavier, and my co-host on this episode is Ethan Singh. Today we will discuss cryptocurrencies and the collapse of FTX with our guest, Professor Ian D'Souza. He's an adjunct professor at NYU, teaching on topics in finance, crypto, and venture capital. He was also the CIO of a successful crossover fund and brings years of industry insight and experience. Professor, it's great to have you on the podcast, but you've had a great career. You want to introduce yourself in your own words? Uh, no, not really. Um, it's, really <laughs> it's really good to meet you, Ethan and Peter, both in my class. So uh, welcome, uh, welcome Mimi here. So let's, let's roll. Glad to have you. Crypto has been in the headlines for years now, but many people still don't know what it is. Could you give a quick overview of crypto and its, its applications and risks? Yeah, so um, what you've asked for is about uh, 10 years' worth of knowledge in one minute. So <laughs> <laughs> um, Should be easy. I, uh, I think the easiest thing to, to say about cryptocurrency, it's the youngest of instruments. It's only about 10 years old when you look at Bitcoin. It's five years old when you look at everything else that's not Bitcoin, which we call alternative coins. But... I think if you have to really boil it down, you should just think of it as the first time we're trying to do ownership and transfer of value via the internet without having a centralized party. So the easiest way to think of that is it's a Gen Z millennial type of instrument that was created after 2008. And so it essentially tries to break the ties to human trust institutions into code-based institutions. So... You know, and it's open to everyone, every single citizen in the world, not just U.S. citizens, European citizens, Australian citizens, etc. So I think from that point of view, you should think of it as um, a global instrument, the first created since, gosh, the 1980s with junk bonds. Thanks for the overview. Yeah, I think crypto is such a complicated thing, and hearing you break it down, it makes it sound so simple. But another thing that's sim- seems simple but is really complicated is FTX. So could you like start to speak about like what was FTX actually? Because it's a, it's a little strange of how they organized. Yeah. So I think um, the most important to think to think about for cryptocurrency is it was created in two thousand and eight to stop us being part of centralized institutions. And FTX is in our language a CFI or centralized financial institution. So. It actually tries to be the bank of holding coins, which was the exact opposite to the uh, vision of Satoshi when he created (laughs) um, uh, Bitcoin in 2008. So when you think of FTX, I want you to not think of it as crypto. I want you to think of it as a centralized institution that helps us participate in crypto, but brings about human flaws that were common in both 2008 and in 2023 with uh, Silicon Valley Bank, which is risk management uh, dilemmas, poor transparency, poor um, uh, governance, uh, poor internal trust mechanisms. But FTX is a CFI allowing you to participate in the crypto. It isn't of itself crypto per se. It's very important to make that distinction. I fully agree. It's 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 slightly different, very different, actually. In fact, it's not the same thing. And what makes it really unique too is the connection to Alameda, which is a big key player in this story of what happened here. Yeah. So I mean, when you think about Alameda, I mean, it 
it was a hedge fund. And what is a hedge fund? It's a pooled amount of capital that is given to you by uh, basically uh, accredited investors to invest in instruments, whether it's stocks, bonds, foreign exchange, or tokens. Out of that, um, if you create a, uh, a CFI exchange, uh, what are you actually doing? You're creating potentially a order flow uh, visual that allows you to have an advantage that others will not have. And by having that, you may actually be able to front run certain types of trade flows. Um, you're able to onboard certain coins that are listing. We often call that ICOs, initial coin offerings. Um, and that gives you an insight and an advantage and an edge that is technically you know, in the stock world, illegal. Now, it's not so much in the in the crypto world because the regulations are only now catching up. It's only 10 years old, right? It's the birth of a brand new ecosystem. But that is, you know, like a major red flag for anyone who trades with them because they're able to see your flow. Um, and now we've learned the so-called um, transparency wasn't, there was a backdoor key, it appears. And if that is uh, the case, then all this so-called talk of decentralization is hogwash, right? I mean, it is essentially, you know, a backdoor key. Think of the matrix, right? You've got a key to get into the centralized decision-making, right? We didn't think that was the case in matrix one, but by matrix three or four, we realized there was a backdoor entry, right? So the same thing was happening here. So we've got to remember using words like decentralization are beautiful, but is that really what the code and the transparency and governance really eventuate. And I suspect in many cases, it's just, you know, pardon the, the language, just absolute garbage and bullshit, right? They say that to make you feel safe. But if you ask me, all of this was like 2008 mistakes just happening in 2022. And we saw it again with Silicon Valley Bank in 2023. So we can't divorce this. What was the real issue? human-based risk management failed. This is not a code-based failure. This is human-based failure that we're trying to pretend is code-based, but it never was. When you have this order sequence, hedge fund, Alamedia, create FTX, create FTT, right? Each one designed to be connected to the other without us actually knowing it in a transparent way. Voila, they get the edge, they get the advantage, they get the expected order flows, and we pretend we're participating in a system that's decentralized, who's the schmuck, right? That's the question. Yeah, thanks for, you know, alluding to not only the collapse of FTX, but the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Um, and you mentioned before we started recording, actually, that the collapse of SVB is connected to crypto. Uh, so just before we dive a little bit deeper into FTX, could you touch on the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and its connection to crypto? Yeah, sure. So... First up, around the time of Silicon Valley Bank, there was also Sil Silvergate, um, which is a direct uh, crypto sort of bank. But um, it is absolutely important that, you know, Silicon Valley Bank had a large deposit from Circle. Circle is a stable coin within the community, and um, it had uh, over $3 billion that's been reported at um, Silicon Valley Bank. As a consequence, during the weekend before the uh, rescue or bailout or whatever uh, you know fancy word you want to use on Sunday night by Treasury uh, and the Fed, uh, there was 
a de-pegging event that occurred in circle. And over a 48-hour period, what should have been a parity-based uh, mechanism, that is what a stablecoin is supposed to be, uh, one-to-one, um, got as low, I believe, as 86 cents on Saturday night when there was panic that, you know, there wouldn't be a bailout by Sunday night. Well, of course, there was. You know, everyone got excited, you know, and uh, voila, circle resumed back to par. But in that small window, call it, let's say, 48, hour to, 48 hours to 72 hours, we saw a number of very subtle but very important data points. Not only the de-pegging, which is obviously logical. If you lose, not lose, but if $3 billion is at risk, then by definition, you know, the parity has to reset at a lower amount than one to one. That's obvious. But then where could the flows of stablecoin money, which is a large part of the crypto ecosystem, go? And we were noticing it was going to offshore type of stablecoins like Tether that are not US domiciled. They have US entities, but not US domiciled. So there was this whole thing happening over the weekend was, does this actually incentivize crypto to become less US centric and more global? Um, and, you know, that, that entire conversation was occurring during the weekend. Of course, the bailout came, Circle resumed its peg within a week or less, uh, and that story sort of gets lost. But there was a lot of interconnectedness that people never really thought would happen between uh, crypto and fiat. Fiat is the US dollar, um, you know, centralized uh, currency. But it is just important to understand that as, as this ecosystem that was worth basically zero in 2008... And now is over one trillion. There's now interconnectedness not just between the crypto uh, uh, mechanisms, but also between crypto and fiat. And so it's just really important that interconnectedness is something everyone should be always aware of. Because what is that really? It's a potential for a domino, and a potential for a domino or cascade is one of the great areas of tail risk that one must always study. And, you know, we didn't know how big it was. And believe it or not, just, just to, you know, delve a little bit on the left curve, FTX was bad. It was a branding bad. It had a lot of other issues that have sort of uh, dominoed later on, Silvergate, etc. But if you ask me, Terra Luna, just four months before that, blowing up really affected uh, collateral and leverage. And when you look at the impact of Terra Luna and the whole sort of international algorithmic stablecoin, that was actually larger on a price basis uh, than FTX. Most people don't realize that. If you just study event to event, it was larger than FTX. And the primary reason was Terra Luna was being used as a leveraged play, whereas FTX was a sort of a more of a, you know, just a shift, uh, an on-ramp between fiat and and, and uh, crypto, not a leverage of crypto on itself. And so it's a subtle but really important point that I think a lot of people lost because so many things happened in 2022. I mean, I think I've described to you, both of you in my class, that I view 2022 as nothing more than 2008, but this time for crypto, right? Not for fear. And it's just important because I think so much has happened and we don't dissect it well and we just say, oh, it's okay, everything's back, and you know, guess what? Uh, Bitcoin's up 30, 40 percent in 2023. Great, we're back, right? And you know, that's sort of childish because we, you know, if we don't learn lessons, then we'll be partly like fiat, right? I mean, what what has happened? Twelve years has come and gone since 2008, 2009. We pretended the fiat and banking system was great. 
right? We wallpaper everything with QE1, 2, 3, and 4, right? And then uh, something bad happens, and within 48 hours, there's a rescue. And it's for the right reason. It's a deposit base, so I'm not saying it's not, but I'm saying, have we learned anything? Has there been a moral hazard that has now now entrenched ourselves to say, every time something bad happens, we know the Fed will be there to help out uh, everyone. I mean, look at what's gone up. Non-profitable tech, Bitcoin, crypto, top three performing uh, sub-assets in Q1. But what were they? If you look at it uh, in a very discreet way, that's great. But if you look at it, they were also the worst performing last year. And so they've done nothing more than a mean reversion play. But why was that the cause? Believe it or not, a large part of it was Silicon Valley Bank being rescued. And so I worry that many of the lessons sort of get lost in price discussions uh, or the the sort of meatloaf of all events that occurred in 2022, and it's not being dissected. And I really don't believe that 2008 has uh, really been dissected very well because the answer to everything is cut interest rates, give us more QE, and everything else will go to the moon. And that's not an answer. That's just a nice way of saying we wallpaper risk management. Um, and and I, I, I genuinely worry about that. So we can talk about and point fingers at FTX, but what did they do different than any other centralized human management on risk management in 2007 and eight? They just did it with less rules because they're not US-based, right? They were in, where, Bermuda, I think, right? I think in the Bahamas. So, yeah, yeah, Bahamas, right, right. Bahamas, yeah. Right, and I'm glad you brought up leverage. And for those unfamiliar, leverage is using debt um, in, in your investments. You would do that in order to multiply returns given a smaller capital base. I kind of want to go back to something you were saying earlier, mm-hmm. that Terra Lunar was was bigger than FTX. Yes. And it gets so much less coverage in the news. And after FTX collapsed, you never heard about it again. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it was bigger than FTX? And why do you think it kind of like fell away from the ethos? I kind of want to see if there's anything interesting down that. Well, yeah. So first up, let's just step back. I mean, when we talk about FTX, we're talking about a CFI exchange or a centralized exchange. When we're talking about Terra Luna, we're talking about an ecosystem built around an algorithmic stable coin that was interconnected to other coins um, and, uh, you know, including Bitcoin at, at a time. They had over a billion dollars, my understanding of, of Bitcoin as a, as a sort of collateral uh, suppressor. Um, and the reason it was utilized so effectively is because uh, they could create leverage within the crypto ecosystem. You know, yield farming, uh, liquidity mining was all sort of interrelated during the DeFi summer of 2020. So this has, you know, uh, you know, you have to go back a year, year and a half to the advent of QE4, the rise of DeFi. Uh, a lot of this happened. And remember what crypto is. And, 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 I, and I, I know this seems like a lecture type of topic, but I don't mean it to be. What is it? It is essentially the transmission of information through social media, whether it's on crypto, Twitter or Telegram. It is adopted heavily by Gen Zers and millennials. Um, you know, those few boomers, etc., that come in are doing it almost from what I call a non-correlated type of asset play. Um, but those who actually believe in it as code-based trust are coming in much younger than any other asset class that I've at least seen in the last 10 years. So they're, they're adopting it, they're trusting it, and they're using it, and then they're using leverage on it. Um, because they believe that's a quick way to get rich. Um, and so that was 
part of the Terra Luna story that was very different than FTX. FTX, yes, has leveraged 25, 50-turn contract type of options, but it was after. The sequence of the domino is very important. The sequence was Terra Luna failing, Celsius Voyager failing, BlockFi in trouble, then FTX, right? And so the sequence of dominoes, remember one thing, you know, when someone gets scared, they pause. What would have been the outcome if FTX went first and Terra Luna happened later? We don't know, but I know that the ecosystem was more leveraged at Terra Luna's point because that was one of the first things that, that, that failed, right? Celsius and Voyager, sure, but they were smaller within the ecosystem compared to that. It was $40 billion at one stage. Never forget that. Uh, you know, 32 billion, I think, for FTX, right? That went down in, what, seven, eight days? But never forget, Silicon Valley Bank failed in two days. You, you know, we talk about donuts all the time. In my class, I tell you never to get too many donuts because that's a great way to not only wipe out your career, wipe out your own personal investments. But I never thought I would see a seven-day failure. I mean, it took, what, six months for, for, for Theranos to fail. You know, there was a lot of rumors, et cetera. It took Wirecard, you know, three years and, and there were a lot of people pointing fingers at that and still it survived. I don't know how. Uh, uh, sorry, I do, but I don't want to go into that. Um, and then if we just move forward, then we have, um, you know, FTX in seven days. And we were talking about it. The speed was incredible. I mean, that was like, you know, crypto t Twitter on steroids. And then voila, Silicon Valley Bank, two and a half days. I, I hate to think what record we're going to break in in another few weeks, and you can't have me on another podcast. Um, <laughs> but, you, you know, I mean, guys, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy. And what does that tell you? Transmission of information in the Twitter world, transmission of, of information in social media is hyper-accelerated. And that means deposits are hyper-accelerated. The belief in value is hyper-accelerated. Never forget what caused the FTX failure. Let's go back to the, the moment there was an article written on Coindesk. It was an excellent article. Did anyone really pick it up? A few of us. But we also, the boring ones, we read footnotes, right? There, 90% of people don't read footnotes. In fact, I would say 98%. Why? Because it's hard, it's in small font, it's at the bottom of the page, and I can't be, you know, screwed. I want to do something else, right? But the 2% who read it go, oh, geez, there's something to be worried about. Then... A few days later, CZ, the CEO of Binance, talks about the article, tweets about it. Everyone reads it. Let's, let's ask why. A tweet. Short, easy to digest, quick, lazy, no footnote needed. Someone's scared. That person's big. Should we be scared? I think I'm scared. Oh, my gosh, if you're scared, I'm scared. What happens? Feedback loop, right? And then we get the doom loop. Blah, blah, blah. FTX, FTT, which was the token for the trading around FTX, collapses. The sequence grows faster and faster. Panic starts setting in. Voila, the collateral against the loan book collapses because they've been marking it at like 30 billion and it was worth, well, you know, zero. It's just like any other thing, right? And um, everything else starts racing away. And then guess what? Panic sets in. The CEO starts tweeting about the panic. Right, that sequence happens in basically 36 hours. And as you saw in my own uh, class, I actually show you the sequence of tweets and the timestamps, and that's terrifying. And you know, it, it is just really important to understand when you're doing what I call thought experiments on Twitter, that isn't PR. That is effectively the creation of a doom loop. And you know, I get it. 
they're all sub 30, the CEOs and all that, that's great. But that is also the manifestation of fear in real time. And, uh, you know, that that was a fast, fascinating example, which I actually personally did not think would repeat. And yet I saw it for, I saw it real time in Silicon Valley Bank. Yep. 42 billion left in one day. Amazing. Right? It's amazing. And then you know what was, you know why the FDIC took control? Let me be clear in case you're wondering, why did they take control on Friday? Because the management said they anticipated 100 billion that is more than 50% of its book leaving between Friday and the weekend. That would have put a massive mismatch on liabilities and assets. And that's why they put it under uh, FDIC control. And that was the correct move. But why was any of this? It started with a few tweets. And then the billionaires started tweeting about it all. Right. And then the next thing you know, you know, they're caring about the middle class which I always find very interesting that they do it only when there's panic for their dollar and deposits, right? But it's it's quite remarkable to look at the number of people that came on and at no stage did we ask, did we learn anything from 2008? Where's the moral hazard? And as a friend told me on Sunday night, oh, I knew they'd save us and that probably just means all risk assets go up. I mean, that was the first thought. Even though it's not QE5, we know it is not even close. What do we know? Someone saved someone. And that, you know, did not happen in FTX, because there is no central authority, central governance. Binance and a few others have tried to create this insurance fund, but there wasn't the equivalent type of policy. But remember, banks have been around 100 years. Crypto in total has been around 10, 12 years, and for the altcoin world, five years or less. So never forget what I say. This is a baby against adults and mature age. You know, we're dealing with a you know, if we're looking at a Simpsons analogy, Homer against the baby, right? I mean, that's what we really got to think through. That's great. And, you know, one thing I love is the term you use, donut. If anyone's hearing that, it's one of the favorite things I learned from your class. To my understanding, those are just investments that go to zero or values that go to zero. Remember when FTX was collapsing, you said, everyone take note of this. This is a historic moment. It's the fastest donut we've ever seen in history. And then F- SVB took that as a challenge and then kind of beat that. Um, yeah, <laughs> but uh, we have a lot of uh, we have a lot of MBAs that listen to this podcast, and a lot of them were, are going to go on to be investors. I know, like Peter and I have interest in the angel and VC space, and I'm kind of curious, considering you were uh, at a crossover fund and looked to companies like this, what do you think led investors to invest unwisely? Now that we know in retrospect into FTX, we know that uh, Sequoia had mentioned that uh, SBF was playing League of Legends during meetings, which I don't know, sounds very unprofessional, but um, what do you think could lead an investor to go awry here? Well, it's the same thing that always leads investors to go awry. Jealousy um, is one of the most, you know, important uh, traits that no one understands. You know, if you do due diligence because somebody else says they are doing due diligence, that isn't due diligence, right? You know what that is? Copying someone else and hoping they did the work for you. You know, what's the one thing I always warn all of you when you have, uh, you know, um, when you do assignments and there are five of you in a, in a team, make sure all five contribute because that way you're learning something on the assignment. When you do uh, due diligence on a VC investment, if the, inv- if the due diligence is, oh, I know X investigated it, that makes me feel comfortable. Uh, you know, what we call the boys club version of investing. Um, that isn't due diligence. That's just uh, lazy investing. 
And in 2020 and 2021, I saw the laziest investing I've ever seen, I repeat, I've ever seen in my career. It was essentially the following. Do you know who's investing in this round? Are they the big names? If they're the big names, they must know something I don't. Oh, and by the way, I have no time to invest, so I'm just going to follow them because if they get lucky, I'll get lucky. Never asking the question, maybe they've got larger capital bases, so if they take a donut, it doesn't affect them. But if you take a donut, you could be toast. And you know the calculation of margin of safety was completely lost in 2020 and 21. There was no risk management. It was, you know, um, keeping up with the Joneses. And it worries me greatly that the save of Silicon Valley Bank, the speed of recovery of some of the weaker assets, you know, i.e. non-profitable ones, may just give rise to something that worries me more, which is the recreation of the bad events of 2020 and 2021. Remember, right in the middle of the pandemic, we had so much free money. Um, and if it recreates now, um, you know, will this be like lessons not learned three times? 2008, we didn't learn much. 2012, we learned nothing. Um, you know, 2020, not much. Um, and now we're, you know, embarking on uh, 2023. A pandemic can't stop us. Uh, a great financial crisis can't stop us. Um, you know, I wonder if a recession will matter, right? And that isn't normal. Prior to 2009, we didn't have the belief that we have what we call in our language, the Federal Reserve put, that someone would come and save us, that mummy and daddy would always be there for us. I, I never grew up like that. That was not value investing. Um, that's not capitalism. Capitalism is, if you make a bad investment, it goes to zero. If you make a good one, you get your reward for it called due diligence and hard work. And yes, luck as well. There's no question about that. But there was always a symmetry to it. And I wonder whether we've got now into a, a place of asymmetry created not intentionally. And I, I want to be clear. I don't believe it's intentional. But I believe every investor from the private equity, venture capital, hedge funds have learned this well. In By QE3 2015, we all knew it. That was pretty obvious. But now in 2020, we learned it. So retail started doing it from work from home. Crypto started doing it with the stimmy checks. And now what we've seen in Silicon Valley Bank, has that now created what I call a feedback loom of moral hazard? And that that worries me. I mean, just as a thought experiment, you know, that's something I really would like people to really revisit because if we've lost the connection between risk and return, and all we think about risk as when do we get saved and therefore return, that isn't capitalism. That's something else. And you can call whatever you want on conspiracy theories. I don't want to go down that road. But I have noticed that. And I can tell you clearly, people are coming up to me. Uh, I want to buy this. I want to buy that. And yet no one's asking, should this be a wake-up call? Is this like Bear Stearns in 2008, which was you know a couple of months of a quick rally before we had the second domino. No one's asking that because they've seen the reaction of 48-hour saves, right? I know they don't want to call it a bailout, but it kind of smells like one, right? So these are the kinds of scenarios we need to think through because, you know, from a behavioral point of view, I believe that's sometimes more important because what is risk management? The ability to actually think of risk. It's in the word. And if you believe risk is kind of always going to be saved, then is it really risk management or moral hazard adjusted risk management. And that's, that's, that's a different calculation.
And thanks for bringing up Bear Stearns. I remember, well, the collapse of Bear, Stern, Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers. It was toward the end of my college career, and um, several of my classmates had offers to rejoin Lehman Brothers at the end, end of their summer internship. And a month later, they were gone, mm-hmm. along with Lehman. Um, so related to that, uh, there are bankruptcy implications to the FTX collapse. Uh, I know they filed for Chapter 11 mm-hmm. bankruptcy soon after the scandal broke. Um, so could you explain what those bankruptcy implications are? Yeah, so first up, it's it's important to understand a few things about bankruptcy. Um, as you know, I was a banker before I ran money. Um, and uh, I was a banker in restructuring as well. So I did M&A in restructuring. So it's a, it's a very important and a very legalistic field. So the first thing you've got to do is, where is the bankruptcy filing? Is it US bankruptcy or is it uh, in a different jurisdiction? One of the most important things with FTX was to work out was it within the ambit of the Chapter 11 bankruptcy laws? That means it's you know within the U.S. jurisdictions, and they are certain rules about recovery. Um, you know who gets priority of recovery, who is lowering the capital structure, and as you know, Peter, in having done the exams with me, you know tokens are at the lowest part of the capital structure. So, you know, uh, it used to be equity is the residual claim. Well, we've got something even lower than that now within the the ecosystem there. Um, so that's kind of step one. And so what do you have to do? You have to file in court. You have to give a, a statement of assets, a statement of liabilities. Um, you have to talk about, you know, the evolution of the curve, whether or not dip finding, dead end possession financing is required. Um, and then the timeline for recoveries, who's getting the recovery and who you can go after. Like if you remember on Madoff, they expanded it from just the core assets and said, who are the other people that were sort of connected? I believe in FTX, they will go after a far wider community. They haven't yet done it. Why? Because they're still getting their ducks in a row. But I know a significant number of entities that I think should be definitely in the crosshairs of the receivers on FTX and go to a much wider group of funds, et cetera, that literally worked, in my opinion, in concert with this sort of uh, SBF type of machinations of what should be pumping and what shouldn't. But I think that's a, you know, the Madoff scenario took years to play out. We're not even within one year of the event, right? We're still only, what, you know, less than six months away. So I, I'm, no one's blaming them, but I would think that they will expand and expand and expand to uh, make sure that all the relevant parties uh, are understood. Now, the bigger question is, do the bankruptcy laws for token type of uh, events actually get captured uh, effectively because they were often written for stocks, bonds, and other activities within the US jurisdiction. We don't know the answer to that. Like we don't know the answer to many questions like what is a security? What is a commodity? These are questions that are still being fought right now uh, real time because these are some of the consequential effects from the FTX events of last year. And I'm happy they're happening. You know, people are pointing fingers on crypto Twitter saying, ha, 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 the SEC, they you know, says, say everything is a security and CFTC says everything is a commodity. Let's divide and conquer between them. But that's, that's wrong. I mean, it's a new system. Everyone has to learn and uh, everyone has to adapt. And I think within the construct of what we have, you know, there has been discussion, and I actually believe, and, and I've said this to everyone, and I've said it to both you, uh, Ethan and, and Peter, if an industry 
is joyfully calling the creation of an altcoin a shitcoin. And then in a regulator says, oh, hold on, you're doing a shitcoin to pump and dump against retail. And then those very people on crypto t- Twitter saying, no, no, you can't do that. That seems kind of disingenuous. If, if more than 90% of altcoins are shitcoins, then by definition, they should be regulated away so that what are we trying to do? Protect the public right? That Like the 1920s, right? That's what created the 1933 Act, the frauds of the 1920s, right? Or the penny stock pump and dumps of the 1980s. You know, the Wolf of Wall Street was exactly that. Pump and dump and hurt retail. And here's an industry that has actually made an art form of shit coins and then get upset at the SEC and CFTC for going after it. And I think that that seems disingenuous personally. And remember, I'm long the industry. I'm long coins. So if, if they go down, I get hurt. So I'm not talking my book like many other people, right? I'm just saying that I think we have to understand, just like the 1990s, things take time to play out. I invested in many dot-coms. They all went to zero, right? But a few that didn't, they had a power law of curve to them, and so they went up a lot, right? So the losers eventually... Uh, were outweighed by the, a few winners, and that's exactly what a power law of a new industry is supposed to do, right? But to attack the regulator for doing their job, and yes, they may be using archaic uh, conditions of 1933 and 1946, Howie, but we have nothing better. And right now, the crypto community is lobbying certain uh, people in Congress to write favorable um, conditions for them. But at the end of the day, uh, ask an industry that creates shitcoins and joyfully talks about it, it seems disingenuous, personally. I fully agree. I think more regulation is definitely needed in a lot of these spaces, and I'm fully on that. I think one of the really interesting things about the collapse of FTX, too, because we covered the regulatory, which is really cool, is the personal lives of the investors who were invested. For those that made the decision to say, I do want to buy into this, um, and then it went straight to zero, what happens in that case? Where does your career go from there? Yeah, so that's an interesting one. So let's define career a little bit before we then try and work out the events of that. If you're a, if you're a, a venture capitalist that invested in the FTX preferred equity versus a individual or a crypto fund that invested in FTT token, they're different because they're different in the capital structure. Absolutely. That's step one. Um, If you get hurt on a preferred equity investment early in your career, that's a donut. If you do it at a partner level or higher, you can generally blame people below you. Um, That's step one to cover your ass, right? And uh, step two then is to talk about all your other winners and therefore, you know, it's not your fault, i.e. cover up. Or step three, to show your winners in other domains to say, you know what, this is a power law type of curve. Sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes we get it right. Optically, it looked terrible, some of the stuff that came out on some of the VCs and the way they invested. Oh, wow, he's so smart while he's playing, you know, League of Legends. And by the way, what little I know, uh, he wasn't very good. I play a truckload of computer games, and at that level, I would not consider him a worthy opponent, right? <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't even waste my time. Um, yes, I would hate to see what he is on Diablo 4 when it comes out in a few, <laughs> few months. Not that I'm excited about it. But um, uh, so, th- you know, it, it, that is in the preferred equity space. If you're dealing with uh, the 
crypto funds that are invested uh, through FTT or through things connected to FTT or FTX uh, ICO pumps. I think that's a different thing. I think they are generally diversified. We saw a few crypto funds go completely down because they had way too much uh, of their uh, assets under management or AUM at FTX. So they deserve to because they're not following the rule. Remember what the rule is. The rule is pretty obvious, right? Not your keys, not your coin. Well, guess what? When you're owning anything on a CFI exchange, they're not your keys. Therefore, they're not your coin. You know, it's exactly like the stock world, right? Uh, when I invest with uh, Schwab or when I invest with TD or with uh, E-Trade, etc., I have a right to them, right? I have an agreement, but they control the flow. And then, you know, you have SDIC insurance and all those other things around it, right? SPIC insurance, right? Um, so it's just, it's a different thing. Now, those guys, I think it depends. This is where I was saying a bit earlier in the conversation, I think some of them will eventually be caught in the net of the wider Madoff type of scenario that you're gonna see play out in FTX. It's gonna take years, it's not gonna take months. Um, and I hope people think about it a bit more logically. I, I don't know whether they will. Um, uh, but I think also there's the question, how much trust can we have in CFI going forward? And I think, you know, the trust uh, disintermediation uh, that has now occurred, you know, do we really trust them? I don't know. And, uh, you know, I, I have a warm wallet, a cold wallet, and a uh, small amount on, uh, on CFI. So why is that? Because I like to have a little bit in an event of important fast movements, you know, like March 2020, having a little bit on a, on a CFI is good. But then the wider thing we need to think about, you know, not your keys, not your coin. You always have to remember that. That's exactly the message of 2008 that again gets lost in greed and quick quick riches. I, I know in your class, one of my favorite things is uh, whenever we participate, you always say, all right, let's play a game. So Peter and I have got a game to play with you. We want to do rapid fire questions. Right, rock on. <laughs> That's the attitude. We're going to say uh, a sentence, an opinion about the industry. We want to know if you agree or disagree and feel free to opine if you want to. But we'll kick it off here. So crypto is a viable form of currency. Agree. And it's especially important because it's a global form, not a jurisdiction-specific form. Remember, bribery and distrust in many parts of the world is higher than in the U.S. Cool. Great. Next one. FTX is the last crypto failure that we'll see in 2023. Yeah, it's already wrong. Right? <laughs> That's true. So we can move on. Yeah. <laughs> we wrote this before the last one. <laughs> the U.S. government will introduce a cryptocurrency. CBDC. Okay. So Fed now was uh, is a new um, system put in place by the Federal Reserve just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I believe this is the first step of a much larger policy initiative to do CBDC, central bank digital currency. But just remember, the word central being in a crypto is actually the opposite of what crypto is, right? So just remember that. Next up. Uh, coins will, will remain unregulated by the SEC for the next five years. Okay, no way. Look, I've already told you, if an industry creates a term called shit coins and they pump and dump them, someone has to do something. Uh, does it need to be the SEC? I don't know. But regulation will come in the pipe. Um, every major event, 2008, 2012, 1992, right, uh, 2001, has created important regulations that have come through 
the ecosystem with Congress, I believe we'll see the same thing because of the events of 2022. Cool. Let me just redo that last line because the question came off bad. Don't answer this. Agree or disagree? Southern District's decision to reject the motion to dismiss, to dismiss NFTs failing the Howey test and to clarify the Howey test is a test to see if something can be considered a commodity. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the answer here would be uh, I agree with the decision because uh, if you read very carefully, it was about the concept of decentralization and uh, the sneaky use of not using the word profit, but using the rocket emoji. Come on, guys, that is profit. So just because you use an emoji doesn't mean we can't understand the uh, the, the the language that was used. So I think uh, it was a clever, but it was very specific to that particular NFT. So I don't want it to be NFT specific. It was a Dapper Labs type of flow dynamic. It's a, it's a very subtle and very pointed uh, reference. Uh, next up. Venture capital investment in crypto will not change. Hmm. I would have to say on that one, disagree, but also agree. And and the primary reason all investments uh, by venture capital is a power law distribution. Um, as a consequence, a few winners will pay for all the losers. And, uh, you know, there'll be a lot of revisiting of the failures on FTX, but you know, a lot of it will be white watered away or washed away if the markets resume their rise. Uh, laziness always comes back into investing. It needs to be thought through like that. Cool. Venture capital due diligence processes will not change. I think it was just similar to the prior response I gave. Due diligence, we hope, will be actually due diligence, not zero diligence. But laziness, speed of transactions, they've all slowed down a lot, allowing everyone to breathe before they make an investment. But as I said, if SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, bailout or save or whatever wording you want to use, uh, will resuscitate risk-taking, then perhaps it will um, unfortunately go back to the uh, poor due diligence of 2020-21. A crypto startup is more risky than your average tech startup. Agree on the surface. Crypto is open source protocol. It doesn't have uh, potentially as many barriers to entry. It's a lower cost, quicker startup. So it should, in theory, but because this is a global addressable market, you can also draw in uh, potential from a far larger community than a traditional domicile investment. It's a subtle but very important point about obsolescence versus addressable market strength. Holding some form of crypto token as an investment isn't a terrible idea. Also, not investment advice. Okay, well, thanks for sharing that part. Um, <laughs> yeah, look, 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 guys, I mean, I own it. I own it because I think it creates convexity within my book. I also recognize it has a high rate of failure. Um, but like the 1990s, I didn't know what was going to work. I wanted to have a portfolio that exposed me to the right tail recognizing much of it will be left tail, but as a power law, you only need two or three for every 20 to make it work. And so, yes, I think it's, it's important, but I always warn people they need to be diligent and not lazy. And unfortunately, in our world, you know, people take their eye off the ball too easily. And last, but certainly not least, jelly donuts are the best type of donuts. Of course. And you know that rule from my class? And that is at Victoria Market 
and you should all get one. Um, I get one every single time I go and visit my family back home because it is by far the best. And what I didn't realize is it was actually an American company in the Victorian, uh, Victorian market, but I don't care. I pretend it's Australian, so that's enough for me. <laughs> that's called Psychology 101. I love it. Thank you so much, Professor D'Souza, for joining us to chat about a highly relevant topic. We learned a great deal about crypto dynamics, risk and regulation, the role of human fallibility in financial collapse, and the mindsets that lead to crypto investments. But seriously, it was super fun. I'm so glad you came on. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, thanks, Ethan and Peter, and make sure you, uh, when you graduate, you know, look us up, um, and well done on what you've done at the school as well. Thank you. Thank you. So, Peter, that was that was pretty awesome. I mean, we both took D'Souza for different classes, but gosh darn it, every time I talk to him, it's like such an incredible experience. Yeah, and I think one thing that really um, strikes me when you hear him speak about crypto, and I'm sure other topics in your new venture financing class, um, is just like how practical and focused his takes are. You know, it's, he doesn't get caught up in hype. He doesn't get caught up in the technicalities, but he explains just the core issues and he's able to really expand on them. Exactly right. I think the one thing I love about Professor D'Souza is that he was a practitioner. He actually did this job. It wasn't something he studied in a book somewhere, which I'm sure he also did. Because crypto, I could never wrap my head around it. Listening to him talk about it, it made sense. But then just hearing him talk about career and finance, because he's given me a lot of career advice. He gave me career advice as he walked out just now. Uh, him bringing up things is like never let jealousy be a motivator in investment. Yeah. You don't think that's something you would hear in a class, but that's something you absolutely need to hear because it is a driving factor. Yeah. And, you know, after I took his class last year, he gave me a lot of personal advice about uh, working in the crypto space. And this is after the collapse of Luna, which he alluded to. Um, and just getting that sort of very practical, market-focused and uh, realistic advice about what it takes to work in the industry is something that um, he's provided for a lot of students. So I definitely appreciate that. Definitely a shining example of like some of the great professors here at Stern. So glad we had him on the podcast and also glad we confirmed Jelly Donuts are his favorite. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to the podcast and I hope you tune in next time. Yeah. Thanks a lot.